Welcome to Common Ground, a higher education podcast that brings leaders from across Pennsylvania together to engage in meaningful conversation. I am Dr. Bashar Hanna, President of Commonwealth University with locations in Bloomsburg, Lock Haven, Mansfield, and Clearfield. Together, we're exploring the issues our institutions, our communities, our students and their families are facing on the path to earning a college degree. From institutional transformation to workforce development, college affordability, and career trends. I hope you'll take time to join me to learn more about the future of higher education and hear compelling stories from some of our Commonwealth's most transformational leaders. Welcome to another episode of the Common Ground podcast. Today, we're delighted to kick off the first episode of the new year, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Daniel Greenstein, Chancellor of the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. Dan became the system's fifth chancellor in September of 2018. In his role as chancellor, he serves as chief executive officer of the state system's public universities, which serve more than 80,000 degree-seeking students and thousands more enrolled in certificate and other career development programs. Upon taking the helm of public higher education in Pennsylvania, Chancellor Greenstein began a system-wide redesign effort aimed at increasing opportunities for students, including those in underserved populations and underserved communities, while enhancing the financial sustainability of our universities. Prior to his role as chancellor, Dr. Greenstein led the post-secondary success strategy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. While he worked with higher education leaders across the country on initiatives designed to raise educational attainment levels and promote economic mobility, he holds both a master's and an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and earned a doctorate of philosophy from the University of Oxford. Chancellor Greenstein, we're so proud and pleased for you to join us today and have a conversation regarding your work at PASHI. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've had an interesting and diverse career in higher education, serving in multiple capacities across vastly different organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey and why you're so passionate about public higher education? I guess there's there's two two components that are worth mentioning. The, the first, obviously, sort of uh, really goes back to my, to my upbringing. Um, uh, I don't share. I was born in Rochester, New York. I don't share this that that often, but um, I think I was a social engineering experiment experiment of my parents. Um, uh, you know, who who in the '60s were in their own way caught up in you know the Great Society, the Civil Rights Movement, um, and so you know, as a kid, when other kids like me are being sent off, you know, during summers, we're playing baseball, sandlot or whatever, being sent off to, you know, do various things. I was, I was the one who was being packed off to the, uh, to the Rochester Museum and Science Center to engage in his program on, ur- on urban renewal or, you know, on, on the then burgeoning drug problem or perceived drug problem in the country and things to do about it. And um, so, so it really was brought up in a way that, 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 um, engaged with social issues, uh, particularly issues having to do the race and growing race and quality, et cetera, uh, and really conditioned and 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 taught in in so many different ways to pay it forward. You know, when I got to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate, um, you know, and I went to a school where only about 25 or 30 kids out of a graduating class of 350 went on to a four-year college. So, you know, it was a, you know, big urban 65% free lunch program style school. Wow. 
Anyway, so I get to the University of Pennsylvania, and I discovered that there's whole philosophical and theoretical underpinning of all this stuff in what was then the new left, uh, which was prominent in the history department at the University of Pennsylvania. So, you know, this whole sort of sort of social justice and equity kind of orientation, which I sort of grown up with as a, as a, as a kind of a, a set of values, then, you know, begins to get a kind of a theoretical underpinning, which was, you know, um, interesting. Flash forward a few years, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going through, you know, academia, uh, collecting my PhD and then moving on to, you know, getting my uh, first role, tenured role in in, in higher education. Um, and 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 it just just again, victim of circumstance. Uh, I was like the first person hired at Glasgow University in like 50 years or 40 years because, you know, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, I was coming in at 29. The next youngest in the Department of History was, um, I don't know, like 44 or something. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, so everyone looked to me as the change agent you know, whatever. I knew what a computer was, I guess. I don't know. It was weird. So I, I kept getting put on all these faculty committees because I was the young person. So I must know about all this stuff. And, you know, so I got involved in all these change efforts, change leadership type, change management roles. I mean, you know, I was at a medieval university. So the first one was changing the grading system from alpha, beta, gamma to numeric, you know, which is a big deal. It's like ripping the lungs out of traditional higher education. And, you know, we got involved in all sorts of uh, European Union programming, introduction of uh, technology, et cetera. <clears throat> and, 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 you know, for my sins, I became very, um, I became the point person in the university sort of devolution that's mainframe services and ended up running a humanities computing center within the does all of that doesn't matter except it distracted me from sort of social equity, social justice type work and sort of thrust me forward into change agency and mostly the use of innovation, innovative technology and practice to improve performance in a variety of ways, very student focusing in, in, in those at those times. You know, and I, I just getting I kept getting tapped and put into those roles. So like six and a half years after starting as a tenured historian, I got asked to run, you know, a national internet service. And in this is in the United Kingdom, I guess, because again, I was still the person who was, you know, young enough to know what computers were. You know, we were experimenting with new technologies, focusing really in this, in this case, on improving research uh, more than teaching. It was really delivery of, of scholarly information. You know, I just kept bumping in, you know, and then people come along and try, you know, so I guess I, I got kind of became known as a person who come along and try new things and never saw a cliff I didn't want to jump off of. And eventually made my way back to the United States and then was asked by the University of California to come again, same thing, you know, build out this great digital library and doing that. And 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 so it, a number of interesting things happened at University of California. One was that the leadership said, hey, could, dig, digital library was like using the power of the system. To, so it, was a, it was an enormous shared service, incredibly successful, probably the largest digital library in the world outside of Japan, I think it was and had a lot of capability that we were delivering to our faculty. And so my then provost said to me, hey, could you come and do for all sorts of other things, University of California, what you did for libraries? And so we started doing all sorts of things, uh, system-wide academic programming, internship programming, you know, et cetera. And then the bottom dropped out, the Great Recession. And 400,000 Californians estimate was, we're not gonna have a place in some higher education. And most of those students were sort of black and brown, not white. All of a sudden, sort of two parts of my life just collided, you know, the social equity, social justice with that change agency. Um, and then Chris Edley, the dean of the Berkeley Law School and the president, Mark Udoff, asked me to, you know, is there a way that we can tap into the intellectual resources of the University of California and using online and digital technologies to create opportunities for people who are going to lose it? Not right. And that was a big number. And, you know. 
so that's when things got super interesting. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Gates came and found me and uh, actually I was a Gates grantee and they said, could you come lead our program to do precisely that, except on a national scale. And then when I left Gates, I was like, okay, let's see if all this stuff works and ended up looking for a place, university system where, you know, the kind of threats that were perceived and still exist in higher education to sort of um, disenfranchise uh, low income students, students of color, underserved students, you know, was severe and profound and and to really try to go in and systemically address those challenges. So, you know, um, really, since the University of California, since the Great Recession, it's like those two sides of my life, change agency and social equity, social justice just came screaming together. And I haven't I haven't given up since. In fact, I think I'm getting as as the runway ahead of me gets shorter than the runway behind me, the case becomes more urgent. Well, ur urgency is uh, nothing new to higher ed, but uh, executing and leveraging that urgency in meaningful ways, I think, is one of the things that we talk about a lot. Um, us presidents under your leadership. Um, if you can just sketch for us in your head, what inspires you about the Pennsylvania's system of higher education and why is this experiment so worthwhile to benefit those that you just spoke about, the, the brown and black students, those that may not have opportunities elsewhere? I, in a weird sort of way, when I left Gates, I was looking for something like the, the state system of higher ed. I was hoping to find it after a year off, but so what? I mean, I I was um, I got two months off, which was nice. Pennsylvania state system is like doesn't the the challenges that we face are not unique, right? You know, the divestment of public funding, the cost and affordability issues of trust, et cetera. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Uh, but they're just super acute, right? Or at least they were in 2018. You know, Pennsylvania is four or five or six years ahead of where most of uh, public higher education, certainly systems and public higher education like us, is going to be, at least in 2018. Now, a lot of them are catching up. If you read the news, you know, it's good. And new university or system, public university or system, you know, kind of per day, you know, going through significant uh, challenges and kind of having to face the same kind of things we had to face. The board and pretty much everybody else knew about it. I remember coming to interviews, you know, way back when, and I must have met with like, I don't know, 150 people in a day or 100 people in a day, whatever it was. And uh, and you were you were there because you were amongst the presidents and everybody I spoke to knew that the Pennsylvania state system was in trouble. They had very different views about what we ought to do to get. But there was no doubt that this was like, oh, crap, we're in trouble. And we need help. And 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 we're kind of at this inflection point. And um, so it was a kind of role where you didn't have to go and make the case for change. People were there. So in so many different ways, it was perfect if you're trying to figure out another multiple pathways for higher education to succeed in the 21st century, I'm convinced. But, you know, um, trying to figure out one that works for universities like ours, which are responsible for 65 percent of all four year enrollments in this country, you know, it's pretty significant, um, significant opportunity. So, you know, I jumped at the well, I couldn't jump because I broke my ankle, but I jumped at the chance. Um, and and and, you know, and of course, you learn and coming here and you can even learn even more and you see, you know, the profound importance of our universities, not just to the state, but to their regions. Right. You know, and and, and all of our universities uh, are just so important as drivers of their of, uh, all changes a little different in some regards, but are so important as drivers in their regional economy who look to our universities as the place where we're going to build the next generation of our leaders, of our business leaders, our civic leaders, our professional employees, et cetera. 
and and this is increasingly important as we're becoming less and less of a of a rural nation. You know, schools that are in in rural and suburban places are schools like ours, universities like ours. We're really the we are growing their next generation of leaders. It's harder to import people than it is to grow your own, and so we're critical in so many different ways. Um, so you know, it's it, it has proved to be everything I, I hoped it would be. It's obviously an incredibly impressive place, incredibly impressive universities, great people. Um, but the mission is profoundly important, and um, you know, so so the the lessons that we're learning, both good and bad, uh, important for Pennsylvania, are important for the field. They're important for the future of of higher education if it is to remain, you know, the engine of social mobility and, and equity that we hope it will be. Let me pull on that thread, and that's a term I've learned from you and conversations. Public higher education in this country, and certainly Pennsylvania is no is no exception, um, has for a long time been viewed as a public good. And the affordability, the access continue to be first and foremost on our minds, especially the Apache schools. Can you speak a little bit about the drive, both internal and external, for the chancellor? to ensure that this entity that really is truly the economic and social upward mobility engine it can be continues to be front and center in Pennsylvania. You know, as you know, we face a number of challenges, right? And I and I I'm a, I like to think of myself as kind of a irrepressible optimist. Um but I'm also a pragmatist. Like we're facing and start with the challenges. I mean, we're facing a number of them. Um we our industry has existed on scarcity uh, I've just finished Michael D. Smith's book, which mm. I think is called The Abundant University, which yep. is it fetishizes digital technology. But it's, despite that, it's very interesting. He talks about, you know, how our universities existed on scarcity, scarcity of access, scarcity of instruction. You had to be in a classroom in order to benefit from it. Scarcity of credentialing. If you wanted a credential of value in the marketplace, you had to come to the university. Each of those aspects would have driven our success, our effect, in effect, our monopoly hold over those things are, are being challenged uh, by lower cost offerings. When with regard to access by by digital technologies, which provide instruction anywhere, any place, and it's getting better and better over time. And you know, as we see in the post-COVID world, a lot of the skepticism surrounding online is sort of fading away, both uh, on on administration, faculty, and student sides. Um, but and and I think most recently by the move towards skills-based hiring, uh, which is um, undermining or potentially threatening the command control that we have had over over credentialing and then so that's sort of michael smith's hypothesis He's, he sees it as structural disruption disruption all these things happening at once and and then if you layer on top of that the fact that we're challenged to sort of preserve our public trust trust in higher education continues to decline pew research shows year after year that that um, that people think higher education is taking the country in the wrong direction. That people are uh, have have limited trust in in the value of higher education. And this used to be a partisan trend, right? You saw this in uh, affecting respondents from from one uh, part of the political spectrum party than over another. It's no longer that they, those those numbers now decline kind of in the same way. Doesn't matter where you are, sort of how you identify politically. So, you know, and it's super interesting that that in and understandable under those threats, you know, you see two kind of competing urges inside higher education. One of them, frankly, is to just speak slower and more loudly about the traditional value we bring. You know, you don't understand 
we're really good. This is why. And we just have to keep doing more. The other is to try to sort of be more responsive to the changing needs of our students, their employers, et cetera. Um, that's harder. So I think we're experiencing our own internal culture war. Hadn't thought of that until right now. That that we have to wrestle with these intrinsic tensions. And our future, and I don't say this necessarily as an industry, but I think the future of the institutions within our industry will be shaped by where they land. I think in terms of of, of, of relevance and, and 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 ability to 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 engage effectively with you know communities. I think that um, failing to be more responsive will just get smaller, and and that will have certain consequences. You know, there's a point, there's a tipping point with respect to size. Uh, you know, small isn't bad. So someone who I respect said to me recently that uh, enrollment declines only bad if you didn't budget for it. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> uh, but if you go back to mission. You know, if if our mission is about driving equity and social mobility, and you can't achieve one without achieving the other, the only way to fill all the jobs, 60% of all jobs today in Pennsylvania require somebody in them with some higher education, 51% of adults have it. The only way to fill the gap is with underserved people, right? You can't just move people around, get them from Penn State to come to, 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 to Commonwealth. Good for Commonwealth, bad for Penn State, doesn't have a damn bit of impact at all on the workforce development policy challenge that we face. We have to get new people, open the aperture into the system. And funnily enough, the people are there to serve. They're probably not gonna be quite as responsive to the kind of education that we deliver. So it's really a question of, are we gonna evolve to meet those new students where they are in pursuit of our mission or not? You know, and it's not like, you know, you're gonna you know, swap everything out and change everything. You know, there's a both and here, but those are, you know, those are choices that, that universities are going to make and their future and their future success and their future ability to sustain and to, to pursue their mission are going to be, in my view, I'm a big believer in choice. Thank God it's not, at least in my worldview, it's not divinely determined, right? We'll make it up on our own. So I think that's a good thing, but I think we have to take that choice seriously. And, and, you know, it is interesting with the accelerating pace of change, the choice gets, the choice becomes more urgent. Well, let, let's pick up on that. Innovate, learner-centric, and the evolving market for our graduates, regardless of whether they're 22 years of age uh, and started when they were 18, or maybe an alternative learner that came to reskill, upskill, or career choice. Share with us your vision for the role of innovative technologies and their impact on the future of higher education broadly and more specifically within our system because i think you 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 said it eloquently in the previous section about making choices but they don't have to be or they can be and that's a that's a revolution uh, not just an evolution in the industry we both work in and most times enjoy working in it I spent enough time in technology to believe that technology is not itself a solution. It's a, it, it is a it is a vehicle for enabling one to get to you know to to, to in, in in our case or in many cases improve performance, sometimes drive cost. But in you know so so I guess in my worldview uh, and in my experience, and I can sort of point to some great op uh, opportunities and examples here in, in the state in the Commonwealth as well as at the system. The the idea is to leverage technology in order to. To, to pursue that other mission, right? It, if, you, if we begin from the point of view that, you know, in order to fulfill our role, economic development, 
social mobility or dual roles that we're going to have to learn to engage effectively with different populations. The question really is, how do we do that and how does technology help? So we've seen a number of them, and I, you know, go through a number of, uh, of examples. And of course, there's a lot more to do. But, you know, if you think about what you've done at Commonwealth with respect to your implementation of the banner solution, the OneSys solution, I know how painful that's been and any transition is. And, and um, you know, and we'll get through that. I'm confident of that. Uh, but the combination between the, the work with OneSys and, and the We Connect rooms have enabled you to ensure that you can deliver programming into places where it would otherwise have disappeared. And you go back to that sort of local and regional importance of our universities, you know, the fact that they're looking to their universities to provide their next generation of leader, it turns out that the people of, you know, name any one of the counties in which you're operating don't just need one specialty of nurse, they need the full range, right? And the way to offer the full range and everything else that is required you can't stand it up. There's not enough enrollments to just to, 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 to enable us to stand up that full scope in a very traditional way. So using technology to, to, to create opportunity for programmatic breath, absolutely incredible, right? It's super important. Yeah, I know you're doing a lot at Commonwealth with your student success centers and specialist advising. You know, we're seeing an awful lot of uh, uh, data-driven supports for, you know, student su success coaching. Right. And it's because we sit on a boatload of data that allows us visibility into not just hundreds, but tens of thousands and in combination, hundreds of thousands students journey through our educational pathways and into career. And from those data, one can derive patterns which enable us to help. So there's a really now you see the beginning to see the application of generative AI really good at detecting patterns that we might not be so good at detecting. I mean, it's incredibly um, uh, important um, in those regards. And there's any number of other different examples of use of technology to drive, um, you know, there's, there's um, uh, to, to drive, to, to, to drive our various, our, our various missions, but the best uses are where they come in and they help us improve upon what we're doing and expand our mission. Student success, um, and you just spoke to it, requires us to think differently about the learner. Um, this generation of learners is different than a decade or two decades ago. What have you seen within your experiences, especially since you've been become chancellor, as to some of the emerging best practices at our schools uh, that really speak to that, uh, recognizing that what used to work may not work today, and yeah. that today's learner is very different than yesteryear's learner? It means we have to segment. We have a segmented student body. We have to segment our offerings. And we know that for a fact, you know, and this is true in the classroom and student supports as well as in various business administrative functions. Here's an obvious example. You know, when I go to recruit traditional students, students who are more or less leaving high school, I know where to go. I go to their school or I show up at a school, you know, at a, at a, a fair that, that are hosted for people who are, you know, there's, I know where to go in the inner, in, in, in social media. If we're trying to reskill and upskill adults as well, you're not going to find them at school. They're not there. So, or, you know, think about financial aid advising, right? Where, you know, the, the, the way to support uh, a vet just returned or just, you know, within a year or two of, of, of service and the way to support a 50-year-old and the way to support a community college transfer student a Latina from Philadelphia who's the first generation of family go to college. The way to have that financial conversation and the resources that you're going to use in that conversation are all different. 
So, you know, I'm thinking about and I'm using specifically using non-classroom, non-examples, because you look at that and you think, do we have the skills, do our employees have the capabilities they need to succeed in this new world? It's not enough just to go along to the enrollment person and say, hey, could you go find us some adults, please? Thank you. That's not, you've got to provide, and, and, and same with the financial aid advising. So, you know, there's a, we're, if you look across the range of functions that are being driven in wholly new ways by this sort of change in the way that we're thinking about our world, and actually, we're not changing the way we think about our world. We're adhering to our mission, which is requiring us to change the way we do business. Well, you're said. talking about upskilling at enormous scale, which is a problem for leadership. That I take on as a leader. That's my problem, right? That's our problem. How do we ensure that our people have the skills they need to succeed uh, in this in this new world? That speaks to an internal revolution and potentially an external adaptation. Um, and you hit on it, the way we advise or communicate or support a student who is not the 17-year-old coming out of Berwick High School is very different than the student that is a first-generation uh, Latina 50-year-old who's never had anybody in their family go to college. Wrapped in all this is affordability and access. I know you are passionate about making sure our mission continues to be the heartbeat that drives us. Where do you see the future of public higher education in the U.S.? And for us, selfishly and parochially, where do you see it in Pennsylvania, especially given the stressors? we you And you mentioned some of the challenges, but the stressors we continue to face every day. But holding on to that mission in real ways, not just in philosophical, theoretical wording, is what's, I think, going to be the difference between a bright Pennsylvania future versus one that may not be as bright. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I think generally speaking, affordability is, is sort of a partnership between universities, the state, and our employer and community partners. Uh, students actually have a role to play, too, and I can get to that as well. The state's role is an obvious one, right? It's invest in our universities and our students in a manner that enables us to keep their prices as low as possible. And there's a great deal, you know, more to do here, obviously. But, you know, we've made some progress. Um, uh, we've increased uh, cumulative funding in uh, this cumulative investment in the state system since 2019 uh, has grown 550 million. That's a lot. And that includes a 25% increase in our annual state appropriation. Of course, that has enabled the board to freeze tuition um, uh, this is the sixth year. That's a lot. Unprecedented in our history. Yeah, so that's, so that's good. And, and, Absolutely. and, you know, and, and, and as a consequence of that, you know, that we've always been the most affordable option in, in four-year option in, in, uh, in the state, the gap between us and the next the most affordable is grown, which is also good. We're still too expensive. You know, it's still about 40, 44% of a middle-income family's discretionary income to send one student, one member of the family to, to, to one of our universities for one year. That's a lot. Um, and that portion is actually growing. So so there's more more to do there. But, you know, obviously, um, investment, state investments a big deal. I think the university's part of that is we've talked a lot about that. It entails, you know, a number of things. One of them entails stewardship, making sure that the lion's share of every dollar that we spend is spent on the student. Right. And on student success. And again, students, because we're sort of opening the aperture. Right. 
So that really makes uh, really requires us to sort of keep our costs down, introduce more efficient you know business practice to make sure that you know time of our people is well spent, that we're working hard, that we're not working harder. Or, well, we're, that, that it, it's not about working more and working harder; it's about working more effectively, right? You know, and that often requires. And we talked about it above, or in the you know earlier, is it requires. Um, you know, change in business practice, often change in mindset. So, so, um, so in the basic business administrative function, there's a lot to do, but also in the student facing functions, right? Are we working, you know, smartly? Are we, are we evolving so that we're constantly surveying the landscape of practice and adopting here things that are demonstrably working elsewhere? Um, honestly, I think we're slow in doing that. And I, it's not just about the state system. I think, systems can be insular because they're big and so we're big so why do we need to look anywhere else but um uh but they, they you know public in particular we can also be a little bit legacy centric and 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 as a consequence i think that dampens our curiosity or can dampen our curiosity and you know and so you see sort of all sorts of fascinating we've talked about it, innovation happening in pockets i think we have to figure out how we enable those pockets to you know how do we sponsor and spawn and 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 enable innovation so that we can pick and choose and move quickly in order to adopt things that work well i take holistic advising the success of your student success centers which are really moving the needle right student success centers are not new bashar you know that right and the evidence base is huge and again i think this goes back to that earlier conversation about how we invest in ourselves and our people and how do we continue to upskill us but all of that will drive to affordability um and then of course some of those interventions or uh, solutions are obviously directly focused on affordability emergency aid there's a lot of evidence that emergency aid when developed delivered in a timely way the way that we might adjust our policies so that rather than stopping person from registering because they owe the university a hundred dollars raise the bar to four thousand or two thousand or whatever you know so that, that that we're not creating such obstacles so there's a lot more for us to do and then on our partner side look you know there are other partners that we work with and we need to expand that too right you know um, employers in particular, particularly in this labor market, but this labor market is going to continue to evolve, are going to need continuously to reskill and upskill their people. And they're going to need to pull talented people through our universities and into their jobs. They have a role to play in that, whether that's through sponsoring internships or externships or employer-based projects or tuition assistance programs. Look, the Commonwealth in its in its wisdom, has established a $5 million tuition assistance program with the, with the state system, which is basically recognizing that it's going to need to upskill and reskill its people. And so we're seeing glimmers of that, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the partnership with Grow with Google, the stuff that you, you folks are doing up in uh, Mansfield with the uh, uh, the the safety uh, the safety work, public safety work. Um, you know, there's a lot of the stuff that ESU is doing with um, uh, members of the uh, 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 resort community around uh, hospitality in, in management. Hospitality management in the Poconos. You know, all of those are great examples. We're doing some cool work with UPMC and with Highmark. So all of those are great examples of that kind of partnership. So I think it's sort of a three-way or so sort of a three-way. Uh, a, a three-way thing. It's not a it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think you know we 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 don't do ourselves a great service when we just sit back and say, sure, the state needs to do it all. Pennsylvania promise, yay. Okay, good. You know, again, Pennsylvania promise, yes. You know, more money for our students. That's that's always good. But at the same time, if we're looking at effective out outcomes, you know, speaking more slowly, uh, louder. Never worked for me when I was trying to sort of navigate, um, you know, a country where they didn't speak English. And I think the same is true for us as we're trying to navigate our future. 
speaking of a country that doesn't speak English, that's a great way for us to think through this revolution because doing it a little better than we've done it in the past isn't going to get us to where we need to be. So what keeps you inspired and passionate about the work ahead as we change the landscape for future learners and their prospects? There's so many different things. So, you know, one of them is, you know, just reading the, just staying current, you know, in the need for what we do is just growing every day, whether you think about it, social mobility, you think about it in, in workforce development, we haven't talked about the civic, you know, creating a more civil society. Holy cow. You know, so, so the urgency of the need, the scale and the urgency of the need, I think the scale and urgency of the challenges, I, I think this growing distrust in higher education is profoundly disturbing. I think that coupled with uh, employer, large scale employer preference for skills-based hiring is a major challenge for us and it is not something where we can just you know sit back and oh this this too shall pass i mean that did not work well in the media industry it did not well work well in newspapers uh you know as as they were facing those kinds of uh challenges it did not work well for for steel uh, as a quick tour of the bethlehem uh, uh steelworks will 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 demonstrate indeed um you know I, I think we have to boogie, right? I think that's that's important. Um, but the, but the the scale of the challenge, frankly, inspires me because um, because the thought of our failure is almost too horrific to really entertain. I, you know, I think the other thing, of course, is that we've already talked about it, is if you look across our system, there's just so many different bright points of light. I love visiting our our universities. You know, I love talking with our students. They're fantastic. You know, um, they they're under enormous amount of pressure to experiencing any number of different challenges. But they're but they're to me, as, as, as a group, they have grit, they have determination, they have energy, frankly, they have optimism, which, you know, keeps me fresh. And then you look at look at our what, what our what our people do, you know, and, and how good we are and how good we can be and any of the kinds of innovations that we've spoken about and countless others. I mean, I remember being up in the uh, last time, last set of campus visits, and I wandered around um, science classrooms in each of your uh, three, in each of the three main campuses, you know, and I was just totally and i would just like break in on these classes and people were very polite but um you know i i sat through uh you know just such an energetic uh class teaching students how to um forensically interpret what people are doing when they're when they're browsing the internet it's a little um a little frightening but at the same time you know but but and, and i i loved the way the the the, the professor interacted with the class. The class was about 30 students. And there was points where the class had to go off and do some practical things. And, and they had a way that he'd obviously helped them develop a culture where they would help each other rather than them walking around, making sure everybody could, you know, do the sort of technical stuff. People were, you know, engaging with each other. That was cool. I remember talking to some of the science faculty in environmental ecological sciences and how they're working together, Lock, Lockhaven and Mansfield, in order to, uh, to pursue student research opportunities that they never managed to do before. And that was so cool. And then speaking to the students, you know, who are just benefiting from, so obviously from those kinds of uh, opportunities. And so you could just go on and on. I mean, you know, we are just... I, I remember going to East Stroudsburg University and stumbling across the digital badging that they're doing, you know, this random conversation and like, oh, my God, it's gone rampant over the business school. It's bleeding into education and other areas. And, you know, students are like incredibly successful as they sort of uh, you know, take advantage of these opportunities. It's just, you know, you can't visit a campus and not have that kind of experience. And you see the enormous potential 
that we have in any number uh, uh, of these areas. And and so, you know, and that's to me the biggest thing, because if the people aren't there, there's not a heck of a lot you can do. Right? You can wish. Yeah. Uh, but we have tremendous folks and uh, and dedicated to mission and 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 actually um, great at what they do. So I think those things together, that's all I have to say grace over. Chancellor, thank you. Um, and to our listeners, I hope you are as in- inspired and encouraged as I have been in spending a few minutes with our chancellor. Uh, this is the kind of leader that came to Pennsylvania with a vision. And he, the state system, uh, is executing on that vision. Our students continue to be a huge inspiration for all of us. They're the reason we exist. Chancellor, thank you again for the time today. We wish you a great 2024. And uh, to our listeners, uh, please um, join us uh, for these Common Ground podcasts. And you can find the uh, the string of podcasts at commonwealthu.edu slash common ground. Chancellor, thank you again. It was a wonderful conversation sincerely appreciate your leadership uh and it's clear that pennsylvania's higher ed uh public higher ed will continue to be the the flag under which we all rally because our students deserve the best we can give them and that is the reason i think we all come to work every day thanks so much best in the new year thanks if you would like more information about today's show you can find links in the show notes You can also visit our page at commonwealthu.edu slash common ground. I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Common Ground. Thank you for listening and be well.